0: Looking back at life 100 years ago in Kilkenny, this is the History Show on KCLOR, with thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media.
1: It's eight minutes past six, you're very welcome along once again to another edition of the History Show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan and I do hope you'll stay with me over the course of the next hour as we continue to look back to the past once again, recounting the stories and times of Kilkenny 100 years ago. Tonight we're going to finish our series recounting the significant role played by women during the Irish Civil War and its build up, among other things. Coming up, Fashion historian, blogger and writer Ruth Griffin gives us an insight into the fashion trends and clothing in not only 1920s Ireland, but also in a largely rural county such as Kilkenny. Historian Owen Swithin Walsh gives us an overview as to how women participated both in front of and behind the scenes in the time leading up to the War of Independence. And we'll be reviewing a wartime special edition of the Kilkenny people from Wednesday, July 3rd, 1922. So a packed programme ahead as usual. I do hope you can stay with me. As always, if you want to get in touch with the programme, you can text me on the KCLR text and WhatsApp line. That's on 083 306 9696. And that, of course, is in association with dinnersready.ie. Or you can email the programme at thehistoryshowkclr at kclr96fm.com. And you can listen back to previous episodes of The History Show online at kclr kclr96fm.com forward the history show or indeed on the kclr app now first this evening we're headed out to south kilkenny and the picturesque scenic village of wine gap it's just over a week ago now since the community there celebrated a very significant occasion as the grotto in the village celebrated its centenary Indeed, it was 100 years ago since the introduction of the Four Acre Grotto, which is the largest of its kind in all of Europe. The grotto itself has many ornate features, such as many statues and mosaics, and it's part of the Village Loop Walk. A special community event was held on Sunday, September 25th, in which Mass was celebrated, a historical tour took place, and the Kilkenny Gospel Choir performed. Well, to learn more about all of this, I headed out to Wine Gap recently and I spoke to the local community historical activist, Noreen Hayes. Now, so, Noreen Hayes, we've just been on a lovely winding walk around the village of Wine Gap and we've just, I suppose, witnessed some of the very, very important historical work that's been going on around the village Um It's a beautiful place, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. And uh, first of all, John, you're more than welcome. You're very welcome to come to Winegap to this beautiful area and um, from your walk around you've probably appreciated all the lovely historical and unique features that we have in the village.
1: Indeed and unique is definitely the right word to use I I, I tell you, it's so obvious the amount of work and effort that's gone in from not only the members of the local community here but also from your engagement with the county council and so forth.
2: Yes, uh, we have a fantastic community spirit here in Winegap and we have various committees and uh, when there's an event to be held everybody rose in together and um, Kilkenny County Council and the Heritage Council have been really helpful and give us great advice in all the projects that we have undertaken and it's very much appreciated and without their help obviously we couldn't manage to do uh, the work that we have done.
1: Fantastic. And I believe last Sunday uh, in particular was a very, very significant day for the village.
2: Yes, uh, last Sunday was a very special community event. Uh, It took place on Sunday last and it was to celebrate the centenary of Gap Grosso. Right,
1: very good. So, 100 years ago, and of course, this series we we, we have been delving into the history of Kilkenny. 100 years ago, in, in yes. 1922, yes. so it's a hundred years then since the grotto was erected. Is that right?
2: It's a hundred years. Well, I suppose, um, Gap Grotto. I uh, the beginnings of Gap Grotto date back to April 1915, uh, when James Butler, who was the Marquis of Ormond. Um, agreed to make over uh, approximately four acres of land to the trustees of the diocese of ossory and um the, it belonged to the extensive ormond estate which was centered in gary rickenhouse near claymory which was the home of the butlers of ormond uh, who were linked in obviously to kilkenny castle And uh, the grotto was constructed mainly between 1915 and 1922 and was established on a natural hillside with a coniferous plantation at its centre. And uh, it was originally put forward by Father James Brennan, who was parish priest of Wyngap at the time, and he devoted great attention to its planning, layout and construction. Um, And it involved the whole of the community. Um, the hillside was planted with a variety of trees and then there was focal points um, around um, provided by statues and uh, they were set in quartz lined alcoves cut into the hillside and a statue flanked each small uh, stone pyramids uh, on the western side and there were seven mosaics placed at strategic points along the way and the pathways all around were bordered with uh, huge pieces of uh, quartz stone, uh, which was uh, obtained from a quarry a few kilometres away in, in a town's called Scraham. And at the time, obviously, there, was no, there wasn't much transport, and most of it was transported by horse and cart. Wow. So we had very strong men, and uh, I suppose, you know, and you can imagine the height it's on you know you see from your walk around it's very high up the hillside is very high up
1: absolutely it's very very high and and that was all drawn by Horse and Cart Horse and Cart
2: yeah by members of the local community
1: my God, it's, uh, it was a different time, wasn't it? I don't know if it would time. happen today. I don't
2: think so. And then at the back on the western side, uh, the flowers and shrubs um, have been planted there. And obviously to keep in tune with our climate change and biodiversity, which is <coughs> all the talk at the moment, we have planted some uh, lovely lavender and catmint. So um, it, during the, we say, the summertime then, plenty bees and butterflies. And just in preparation for carrying out the special event, um, uh, we did have a conservation plan carried out in advance in 2021, uh, which highlighted a number of, um, you know, a few health and safety issues which had to be dealt with uh, before we could hold the event. And uh, a conservation management plan was carried out, it was funded by the Heritage Council, and uh, then for to carry out the works, we received funding from Kilkenny County Council. And as I say, they are so (coughs) helpful to us, you know, and giving advice and everything, and it's very much appreciated.
1: Of course, um, on this special day that we had last Sunday, the Kilkenny Gospel Choir were here as well. Isn't that right? It was a a great event, I'm sure.
2: That's right. Well, Mass is celebrated at the Grotto by our parish priest here, Father Fergus of And um, uh, Father Larry Wallace also uh, attended. He was a former parish priest here who is now in Mokalee. And uh, we had uh, the Kilkenny Gospel Choir who performed, uh, who performed uh, led by Father and it was a wonderful occasion. And um, again, the community helped out from when we got the hall ready in the morning and all the community got involved and they supplied lovely um, home baking and refreshments and uh, all of that. So great thanks is due to all of our community who helped out in any way, our CE scheme workers and uh, all the community that did any work in the Grotto. Um, So, that's how communities operate and that's how we operate in mind Gap.
1: Noreen, can you tell me a little bit more about the Village Loop Walk and the Barnabrack Loop Walk?
2: We have two Loop Walks, um, John. Um, One is the village loop walk, which is uh, 1.5 kilometres, and that's the one that we have uh, walked along now, incorporating the grotto. The second loop walk is the Barnabrack loop walk, which is a 9.5 kilometre walk. Uh, It's outside, you start in the village and you follow the red arrow, and it takes you on a roadway for about uh, uh, two to three kilometres, and then you go in to a beautiful wooded area, beautiful scenery again. Uh, around in a loop, it goes around in a loop and you come back down then to the village. Now uh, they were developed in 2015, both of them, and uh, both are accredited to the National Trails of Ireland.
1: So Noreen, while we were on the Loop Walk, um, we would have also come across Feehan's Well. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, Feehan's Well is, is a, again a unique feature in, in on our village loop. And I suppose the story goes back to <coughs> the 1800s, in, where there was a Patrick and James Feehan who lived in uh, tiny cabins um, that existed along the road way beside the leak House in the upper village and like dozens of other peasants in the 1800s, they rented tiny cabins and tiny gardens from um, the wealthy landlord of Rosanara House, which was based in Kilmegani. and a laneway stretched from their house down to Fiehan's Well. And the um, laneway was known as apisha which I suppose is the laneway of the fairies. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, the water was carried by the villagers from Well to the upper village. There was no water supply into the village pre the 1800s. And, um, and then the village pump uh, arrived around 1880. So that's sort of more or less finished the, the traffic down uh, from, uh, the upper from the upper part of the village down to Well. But um, interestingly though, there was no, um, still no water in the old school. Uh, which housed the teacher's residence and a boy's and a girl's school. And the kids from the school drew buckets of water from Fiehan's Well up to the school on a regular basis. Okay. The story opened up a window of, of scandal of land exploitation that existed in Ireland at the time. And uh, it shows the significance of Fiehan's Well and what we call the humble bucket. And uh, it also shows the connection with the welfare and drudgery of generations and centuries of Waanga people and the essential role of water in their everyday lives mm. and really in the lives of countless pupils in Wyangap uh, school. You know, um, the old school opened in 1848 and it closed its doors in 1964. And there's many Wyangap people probably all over the world at this stage um, who once upon a time drew buckets of water from Feehan's Well Uh, to thirsty teachers in the school and can relay the stories. And there's many stories to be told of carrying the buckets in Fiehan's Well. I'd say many buckets never arrived. (laughs) (laughs) Well, firstly, there's a sculpture down at Fiehan's Well. uh, And uh, it was carved out of a stone that was found (coughs) just in the area and it was carved by Kevin Fenlay. Uh, who would be a local sculptor and um, basically it represents, that sculpture represents the people that would have come from the upper village, drawn buckets of water, all that distance up. And then, uh, as just up from Feehan's Well, then you have um, a very colourful lady sitting on the seat. (laughs) The seat was carved out of a 200-year-old oak tree, which was kindly donated by um, a gentleman, Newtown Stud, in Clonmel. And uh, John Hayes, uh, who was a master uh, sculptor with timber, carved out the actual seat a lady. And the lady was known as Judy Kiley. And uh, she was known for her holding leg- uh, sorry legendary uh, dances in her house in the upper village here. And um, as you can see, she has a, a bucket beside her. And uh, that was uh, carrying column clay from down in the bog, to repair her clay floor from all the legendary dances that she had.
1: So the grotto itself is adorned with many fabulous statues. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about those?
2: Yeah, I suppose the focal points uh, are provided by the Calvary, which is the uh, first statue that you meet as as you ascend up up the steps. Um, that is made from Portland cement. And then, um, as you veer to the left, then we have the Lord's Grotto, and that particular statue is of Sicilian marble. And um, then, as you continue on, we have a statue of Saint Très of Lisieux, the little flower. And then on the western side, you have um, a statue of Christ the King, and that's Italian marble. And then as we come around, then we have the statue of Saint Patrick, which again is of Italian marble. And in front of all the statues, we have uh, beautiful mosaics. And they're in three different languages. They're in Irish, English, and Latin.
1: Fantastic. And if you could even believe it, on on top of the grotto and all the other fantastic historical sites here in the village, the old League House. Tell me a little bit more about that.
2: Sorry, the Irish National Land League uh, was a political organisation set up in the 1800s, I suppose, basically, basically to abolish landlordism. Um, tenants, obviously, farm and tenants, they had no rights, they just worked on the land that they didn't own. And uh, again, the land war, there was a huge period of agitation, and <coughs> it was the same here in Winegap, and the local farm and family were evicted from their lands in around 1887. So that prompted the local parish priest, uh, Father, um, again the Father James Brennan and uh, Father Patrick Phelan, um, to uh, build uh, a hut, they would have called it a hut at the time, uh, to uh, accommodate the family that had been evicted. And um, there was a number of these huts, they were called league houses because of the land league, um, to house numerous people all over the country and here in Wyngap there was one built to house a farm and family that were evicted and it was built by again the local community and um, three stone masons that were involved in the, uh, later in the building of the grotto and it was constructed over probably a three week period and uh, that family moved in and um, they returned then after two years victorious to their own lands. Now, um, as of today, as I mentioned, there were several league houses built all over the country, particularly in County Mayo, because Michael Davitt, he was one of the leaders of mm. the, the, the Land League Association, and, um, but it's the only remaining league house in Ireland that we are aware of that is still standing.
1: And a very big thank you to Noreen Hayes there for her invitation and indeed her insight into the rich history of Wine Gap. It's Grotto, which is officially 100 years old and its many other monuments and statues. The loopwalk that I went on really is something to behold. It's a credit to the local community and to Kilkenny County Council, so I can't recommend it enough. And indeed, Noreen has asked me to remind you also about the recently opened tea rooms in the village. It's a lovely place to enjoy refreshments after a visit to the area. It's time for a commercial break, but when we come back, we'll be concluding our series on the significant role played by women in the Irish Civil War with historian Owen Swithin-Walsh. We'll be back shortly.
0: Turning the clock back to 1922, you're listening to The History Show on KCLR, with thanks to the Heritage Office of Gulkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Top, Sport and Media. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan.
1: And you're very welcome back. Well on this evening's episode of The History Show, we're going to conclude our look back at the significant role played by women in the Irish Civil War in 1922. With a Kilkenny-centric focus, historian Owensvin Walsh has given us an overview as to how women participated both in front of and behind the scenes in the time leading up to the War of Independence.
3: Our understanding of what women did during the war, what we call this the revolutionary years, the decade of changes, the decade of centenaries, whatever you want to call us, um, our understanding of what women did in that has, in the last few years, thanks be to God, um, really kind of come out into the open. And there's a, a few reasons for that. Maybe I'll just touch on that first, it's a little bit kind of historical theoretical, but when I was in, in university or college a few years ago, they were trying to encourage this a lot more. Um, this idea that you don't just throw women in as an appendage uh, as a special chapter in the history book going oh uh by the way uh, here's here's all what the women did or you say women were, they were kind of patronizing at some stage it was like women were great back then they made the tea or they made whatever and um uh what we now know is they were a, a hell of a lot more involved um than we ever kind of gave them credit for and women have been integrated into what we call historiography so much more now so it's not just shove into uh, a woman a women's chapter it's now they are part of the story lineage as it goes along so it's not um you know you're not just trying to say like um just kind of throw us sop. and we also have become aware in the last few years uh, hopefully anyway after all this study is that it's not just all about the ambushes or you know the big set pieces That is important. I'm not saying for a second, the military aspect of revolution is not important. It is very, very important. Um, You know, as people said, like, Britain didn't really notice anything in Ireland or anyone was a bit annoyed until, you know, a soldier was killed or whatever. And that's what happened. But we now know revolution involves so many different spheres, you know, men and women, young and old. So just for example, you know, we've talked about this kind of before, but the idea that, you know, people were subscribing money for the Dáil loan in 1919 and 1920 to set up this government. People were giving money, that was the way they were showing support. People were acting as judges or juries in the Dahl courts in 1920. People were canvassing, and this is where women really came into it in Kilkenny, they were canvassing and uh, for local elections and local elections so important both in the 1917 by-election with kenny then the uh, 1920 local elections there were two separate groups then we come into this year 1922 in the uh, pact election in June. women are so important uh, they because they have they're the ones going out kind of canvassing they are also trying to get people out they are organizing and um like when i was in in, in, in college and that we always read um the, the, the one kind of de facto book was Margaret Ward's Un, Unmanageable Revolutionaries. She wrote this book in the early 80s, I think, and it's been republished this year fantastically. Um, it's kind of like the Bible of um, this period in relation to women. And she often said, like, when she was doing this, her professors didn't think, well, well, how could you write a book about women? Sure, you know, what what do they do or whatever? Now we know they were involved in everything from, you know, delivering weapons, uh, doing ammunition, providing first aid, providing digs, providing safe houses, uh, delivering dispatches, and they were at the site of ambushes and you know they might have been firing the gun but they were heavily involved and I just think of some of the big set pieces in Kilkenny just say the Huggins town um, attack and barracks you had ha- Hannah Murphy just about two miles away from Huggins with a little first day and sorry Hannah Murphy is the leader on um, the overall leader of on in Kilkenny throughout the whole period here from 1916 to 23 she's involved in Cuminamon um and she is there with, a aid, with an ambulance ready to take people away. Uh, as well as that, she is the one that provides househouses and sheds for uh, bomb-making facilities, where Dan Stapleton from Bill Kelly, who's a chemist, is at our house making bombs and she is there kind of helping him and having him on site, you know. Uh, they, you look at something like, um, I'm thinking of even another big one is Cool bond up in Castlecomer. you have the like of Helen Fottrell and Margot Welsh and, and the Castlecomer, coming among women, all delivering dispatches bringing guns to separate, at uh, certain points, bringing bombs or gel uh to certain points, it's all because women won't be searched, that's the idea. Men could obviously be searched a lot, uh, women usually wouldn't be searched unless uh, there was a big kind of outcry over this and they had to get female um, searchers in. So there's all that aspect of us and it's great now that we are uh, kind of casting a net wider in looking at revolutionary era Kikenni and revolutionary era Ireland and we're not just focusing on ex-wines at every minute of just an ambush as important as that is and then women are involved in we know about men and shell shock and trauma and the aftermath of civil war and you know the repercussions they had. But you know, women—if you—if you think about it, women are the ones that are at home when the black and tans raid, when the free state army raid. They're the ones that are at home that take the brunt of us in many ways. They—they're they, woken up in the middle of the night. They're strange men come into their house and turn it upside down. We don't know what kind of attacks any of these were under, but it must have been nerve-wracking. Um, and and again, people didn't really kind of uh, think of this or analyze. which i always thought was was a bit unfair um and, and so men could go on the run which was fair enough but, and, and you know if they were caught they could be killed or beaten up we get, I get that but women were also kind of at the forefront where they were, they had to kind of pick up the slack in relation to all these uh, kind of searches and this kind of trauma uh, the idea of the aggression from whatever side whether it be the Free State Army searching some of the anti 3 IRA and sometimes the, um, uh, the uh, obviously the Black and Tans and the RIC but uh, and then women had their own trauma so we always talk about the deaths and fatalities of of a revolution or war that's very important because that's the ultimate price but there's people that are injured in many different ways that are not included so if you think and what i think is actually kind of sad this idea of how women were attacked and and what marked them but the one thing i find amazing is this idea of hair cussing hair shorning. This is something that seems to have happened. So if you look back at the Cromwellian War, we have evidence of women being captured by the opposite side and how they're punished to shave off or cut off their hair. It happens in uh, you know, it happens now in our in Kilkenny in 1921, 22. It's black and tans doing this, or it's the IRA doing you know, to women who step out with policemen. It's always or step out with the RIC or the enemy. It's always seen as as the worst thing ever. You also have it rise up, you know, to the um, you know, up to the troubles in the north. Uh in the, uh, in this very week or Last week, I saw girls in Ukraine on images who had their head shaved off by the enemy. And it was the exact same thing. is to mark the women out to say, you know, yeah, you did something wrong, uh, it defeminizes you, all, all these other things. And, you know, that is a kind p- of punishment and attack. But, you know, we didn't really think about it like that uh, until relatively recently. So there's a whole kind of plethora of, of things that we have to kind of now take in to our understanding of this, the likes of, uh, you know, we don't even know what the impact of this kind of sexual violence is, uh, you know, because it just wasn't spoken about in many cases. But there is uh, evidence uh, in some instances of women being attacked somewhere way or, 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 or other in, in that respect. So there's there's so many different things. If you think of Tilkenny, Kenny then, just in relation to the revolutionary era, there's 870 women in County Kilkenny are signed up to come in on at the end by the end of the War of Independence. There was 870 is a loss and it goes right from top of the county right down to the bottom, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all, um, you know doing you know being out ambushes and everything a lot of the active active women who are in the forefront are actually only um uh you know are, are kind of only a handful so you get the likes of hannah murphy who's kind of the the what we call the oc or the captain of the coming of monica kenny the president then are the stallards the stallards dynasty uh they're from danville outside kilkenny just three sisters that are really heavily involved and Th- those women in themselves could have a case study you know in it they like the Stallard family go back to an old Venian family back in 1904 they were sticking up black flags uh, in protest to the king and queen visiting you know Kil- Kilkenny so they weren't like an, an organised organisation but they were protesting or using their voices and uh, you go up then to 1916 is when Cumin Amon is founded in Kilkenny so it's a little bit later than other places and then it survives right through Hannah Murphy is the woman or Hannah Dooley as her uh, maiden name was uh, from Dun- Dunningstown, just outside Kilkenny there. Uh, she is the is the one that leads it throughout. And the on in Kilkenny in 1922 take the anti treacy side. The leadership do. So th- the overall brigade leadership take um, the anti treacy side just like Cominamon does nas- nationally. However, what we kind of know just by... The, the, the bits of records have is that an anecdotally as well is a lot of women drop out of common amon who don't either want to be neutral or go on the free state side. And they and the ones that want to go on the free state side join another organization called Common Nasertia And Common Nasertia is an organization um, which is basically set up to help free state soldiers uh, are injured or convalescing and to arrange uh you know some kind of entertainment for them and you know to provide uh some assistance to their families, as the case may be. Coming mind, do the exact same for the anti-treacy side. So Hannah Hannah Anna Dooley and Murphy has a whole uh idea or a whole thing of um kind of army of women that would be visiting the prison in Kilkenny, in Kilkenny Jail, which is out in jail road or out near the end of Walking Street or used to be there up to the nineteen forties. Uh she is Visiting them nearly every day, or someone visiting them and giving them hampers, so it's making cakes or bringing in gifts. They're also doing propaganda work around Kilkenny, showing you know bad stuff the Free State Army's done stencil- and <laughs> stenciling on the walls. All this is 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 to, is to you know to help the cause. So they're very much involved. I'm trying to kind of, I suppose. Uh, get people's minds to, I don't know, kind of just think of all these women and how how they help the cause, but in their own way. And it's not just about what we kind of traditionally considered to be involvement in the revolution. There's a hell of a lot of ways people can contribute without firing a gun.
1: historian Owen Swithin Walsh there concluding our look back at the role played by women in the Irish Civil War in 1922 and a big thank you to him for his insight and knowledge once again right now it's time for another commercial break but don't go away because when we come back we're headed to the 1922 Catwalk
0: The History Show on KCLR, with thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism Culture, Arts, Geltocht, Sport and Media Tuesday nights from 6. This is Casey Elor's History Show.
1: And you're welcome back to part three of the History Show. Now, we've covered many aspects of social life in Kilkenny in 1922 thus far on this series of the History Show, such as the food that people ate, the music they listened to, the films they watched, and this evening we're going to hear more about the clothes that they wore. Ruth Griffin is a fashion historian and writer with a Master's Degree in History and Culture of Fashion from the London College of Fashion, and I spoke to her recently about the fashion trends both locally and nationally in 1920s Ireland.
4: So, 1920s Ireland um, it's brilliant looking back over the 100 years Um, it's amazing to think we're looking back at 1922 Um, and fashion in in Ireland a lot of people look back and and look at our history especially fashion history and think because of our troubles and because of our history that um, fashion didn't really play a big part Um, but the thing is that while Ireland isn't uh, a fashion country or doesn't have fashion capital, we still were very interested in it. And there was still a huge amount of retailers and dressmakers and tailors and department stores across country that were feeding into everybody's passion for clothes. So be it you're dressing yourself for a Sunday best or um, you were really into your style, there was something for everybody. Um, but like if we're kind of talking countrywide, many main towns and cities, so like your Kilkenny or your Carlo would have had a very large drapery store or department store, and they would have had um, you know a selection of goods that they would have sourced in places like Dublin or further afield. And then the smaller towns would have had tailors and drapers as well. So even just looking at that, you can see a kind of a network of different businesses that were, would have been feeding people. Um, their Their clothing so there's kind of difference between I suppose wearing something you know your practical side of having a lovely winter coat um, and making sure you've got your Sunday best and you've got your suit and you've got your good dress um, and then somebody that was very interested in fashion and you're using it as as something um, to showcase your identity or your status um, but even if you didn't have a lot of money people were you know only human so they still enjoyed um working a trend um and dressing up so that's that's all that's actually really nice to kind of look back and we'll know ourselves when we look in our own family um photo albums you'll know yourself that um you can see your grandparents or your great grandparents and they're wearing the clothing that's specific to the time so you know be it in A high fashion level, or something that was just made, you know, on the sewing machine on your grandmother's table, fashion was still playing a part in the wardrobe of of everybody at that time. Um, And the 20s are interesting because, you know, if we're talking fashion in the Western world um, and all the different things that are happening in the Western world, um, you've obviously got the birth of Hollywood and you've got cinemas popping up around the country. So you're getting you know fashion needs to have um like something to set the trend you know you need to see either some kind of media so you need to see fashion magazines or journals or film and um, to be inspired by different looks or you need to see it in a city and see people wearing the actual looks so the cinema was a huge influence and you know again we know in every town around ireland and um, there was many lovely cinemas built at that point in time. Um and that was really feeding people's um fashion sensibility really in a way. So there's kind of two different things going on. There'll be, you know, you have to be clothed and you have to look respectable. And then there's a certain element of society who would like to wear a trend. And obviously, you know, the younger generation would have been very heavily influenced by the things that they would have seen in the cinema. And wanted to look like those movie stars as much okay. as we would today but nowadays we are we're able to um, you know get our product our fashion from many different sources and we can get it sent from anywhere in the world and um, but in the 20s and um, it was a little bit more limited but again not as limited as you might think Um, you have to think as well Ireland was very connected to the UK and America by you know, generations of families. So there's a lot of women who, particularly women is what I'm talking about at the moment, is women who would have had older relatives who would send them beautiful clothes from America. Um, You would have women also who have great skill in dressmaking. So they may see a picture of their favorite movie star wearing something, and then they would be able to, you know, buy the fabric in the local shop, you know, your local haberdashery in Kilkenny, for example and they'd be able to um reproduce it at home and the 20s are quite great are great because they're it's when things really changed. the hemlines got shorter and um, the silhouette was all about a kind of a um so sort of almost boyish figure so it was a dropped waist which meant the emphasis was on the hip and a lot of dresses were a, a kind of a sleeveless style dropped waist and um you were showing leg for the first time. So shoes were very important um, and hats to kind of balance out the look. So in a way, um, if you think about previous to that, women did do dressmaking from the mid-19th century. Well, the clothing was much more elaborate. You know, you were going to be lace and different layers. You know, there's lots of different layers of, of petticoats and corsets and things like that. But the 20s were quite revolutionary in that it was after the war. And obviously Ireland was also at war um, and were affected in very much the same way other parts of the western world were as well Um, and um, after the war that really changed because women had experienced a time where they could be wearing clothes that were less cumbersome and they were able to yeah they were wearing shorter skirts and they were slimmer styles and so for the home dressmaker this is great because he didn't need as much fabric and they were probably much easier to reproduce the things that you saw, you know, your favorite celebrity wearing. Um, and the dressmaking business was huge and many businesses across Ireland would feed into that. Um, the haberdashery business, just in case people don't know what haberdashery is, it's really selling fabrics and everything you, that you'd need for dressmaking, from sewing, uh, thread and needles and trimmings. Um, so women could very inexpensively create the looks from a habitatry. Um, But often, as I mentioned before, drapery stores, the local drapery stores, would have gone on buying trips to Dublin. There's different parts of Dublin that were were kind of buying destinations. You know, a bit like now where people go to Paris and London. People would go to particularly South William Street. It was a rag trade street. Um, and that had a lot of warehouses and wholesalers that so people who had their stores would come and buy their products and it would be across the board. So everything from shoes, tailoring, shirts. Um, so there would have been manufacturers and wholesalers that would provide to the domestic market. Um, so that the 20s were obviously a big change. Um, all of those troubles at the very beginning of, of the, the decade. And then as we go into the 1930s with the kind of the trade war and the tariffs that came in with devil era. Um, a lot of the businesses the kind of wholesalers and manufacturers they actually started manufacturing in Ireland kind of was very encouraged because it was much more lucrative to to manufacture in Ireland and because of this taxing and um, imports coming from other countries so it actually meant that when we hit the 30s and 40s there was a huge amount of, um, of Irish domestic businesses feeding businesses that would be you know drapers and department stores across the country so it's kind of a funny moment in time that and uh, there was actually a huge amount of manufacture in ireland for the clothing industry and um, and yeah that that was that was right up until the 60s um when fashion changed again really dramatically when everything became kind of in everyone was very interested in denim and jeans and the kind of hippie counterculture so you've got a nice moment in time from about the late 20s to the 60s where um, Ireland was producing um, for the domestic market. You know, great coats, shirts, you name it. You know, we we had people producing um, all of these different items, um, which I think is fantastic, um, especially today when we're talking about sustainability. We're talking about, you know, the kind of carbon footprint it takes to bring things from so many faraway places it's really nice to know that we actually did have uh, the skills and we had the businesses that would be were able to produce clothes within our country for our domestic market so yeah it's a very interesting time to have a look back on
1: And thank you very much to Ruth Griffin there, fashion historian, writer and indeed blogger. Yes, Ruth regularly uncovers the long history of Irish fashion design, businesses and icons in her blog, which can be accessed via her website, which is www.ruaruth.com. That's R-U-A-R-U-T-H dot com. You can hear part two of my chat with Ruth on next week's episode as we discuss the famous fashion designers in 1920s Ireland, as well as a look back to the attire worn at the average dance hall in Kilkenny 100 years ago. Right now though, it's time for our last break of the evening. Don't go anywhere
0: exploring the lives and events of 100 years ago in kilkenny the history show on kclr with thanks to the heritage office of kilkenny county council and the commemorations unit of the department of tourism culture arts Talk, sport and media kilkenny 100 years on kclr the history show with john moynihan
1: and you're welcome back to the final part of tonight's history show here on kclr It's time for it's Said in the Papers and this week, it's a particularly significant issue of the Kilkenny people, it's a special Wednesday wartime edition of the paper. Let's look back now to Wednesday, July 3rd, 1922. The Kilkenny people, Wednesday, July 5th, 1922. In this special war edition of the people, much of the reporting and stories are from the events transpiring in Dublin. However, some Kilkenny-based war stories do manage to make the cut. The news that national troops operating in Kilkenny have captured Callan Barracks, mullan and Thomastown makes page three. Meanwhile, Castlecomer Barracks, already held by national forces, was attacked on the previous Monday night, but the attackers failed to dislodge the garrison, who up to this point at the very least still hold control of the barracks. Elsewhere, the paper reports that rumours are rife that Haywood House in Kilkenny, the beautiful residence of Colonel Poe, was on fire the previous Wednesday. However, in a sign of different times in terms of news reporting, no one could report to the paper whether or not the rumour was true. On Monday, the paper reports that two Kilkenny priests, Father Delahunty and Father Albert, were present with the garrison on O'Connell Street in Dublin during the period of intense firing. The paper says that the fact that the two priests stayed with the garrison right up to the day of the paper's publication was a quote, sign of determination on the part of the defenders to hold their positions to the very last moment. Other high profile locals also make the news in the war effort. Mr. James Lennon, an ex-TD for the area, was arrested on Tuesday and conveyed to Kilkenny prison. It's stated that he was found in possession of two revolvers and a considerable sum of money. Meanwhile, page 5 has the banner headline, Stop the Press, under which it is explained that there's a battle raging near Erlingford in Kilkenny, as the garrison refuses to surrender and reinforcements from Kilkenny City are being called upon. The same piece reports that the chairman of Kilkenny County Council, Mr Sean Gibbons, was arrested during the battle. On any normal week, this would surely have made the first couple of pages of the publication, but this was no normal week. Meanwhile under the headline Kilkenny isolated, it's explained that no traffic has been able to get beyond Abbey Leaks on one side, Ballyhale on the Waterford side and Bagnellstown on the Carlow side, due to the blowing up of several bridges. Fire plays a theme elsewhere too, as the burning of Woodstock House in Inishtig is reported. The historic residence of the Ties was set on fire on Saturday night and was wholly destroyed. There was some room in the paper, however, for some non-war-related news. The paper reports of a circular sent to all licensed alcohol traders in Kilkenny. It reads, The Kilkenny Workers' Council, having repeatedly requested the grocers and vintners of Kilkenny City and County to abstain from selling foreign ales especially the ales manufactured by the firm of the notorious Colonel Gretton, and having noticed that several firms and clubs in Kilkenny are again stocking these ales, the Council hereby notifies all those concerned that on and after July 24th, drastic measures will be taken to compel the people who persist in selling foreign ales to comply with this request. (laughs) that's just about it for this evening's episode of The History Show. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you'll join me again at the same time next week when we'll be looking back at the burning of Woodstock House. As always, feel free to contact me at any time on our email address, thehistoryshow at kclr96fm.com. But until next week, it's a very good evening from me. Thanks for inviting me into your homes as always.
0: Looking back at life 100 years ago in Kilkenny, this is the History Show on KCLR with thanks to the Heritage Office of Kilkenny County Council and the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media.